verses 5 to 11. If you've got a, one of the Bibles, it's on page 11880. Um, and we're going to read this together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's just pray again. Jesus, living word, as we read these scriptures, as we approach you today, May it be you who speaks to us. May we hear your word for us fresh for today. God, I pray for everyone in this room right now that those who are hard-pressed would be blessed and built up. That those who are discouraged would find inspiration and new life and hope in you. That those you are calling on to new things would hear your voice guiding them today. All through your word, as we center our lives on it together. Oh God, I pray that you would bless this church. Thank you for this church, for the good news that it is in the city of London. And we pray peace, we pray influence, we pray above all else that it would be known as a place where you, Jesus, are lifted up. And as you are lifted up in this place, may you draw people here. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask you, Father. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to do a little series looking at good news. Good news. Because Paul here, as elsewhere, makes some astonishing claims about Jesus, right? He says that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is God made flesh. And he comes to us and he gave himself of us as a gift. He sacrificed himself for us. He took on the full weight of our sin, of our brokenness, of our rebellion, of all the ways in which we were enemies towards God. He has taken on all of that, taken it on to the point of death, and has then, therefore, been resurrected, raised, and overcome all of that. And he leads us into the age to come. He is our living hope. Our living hope. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We can never hear that message enough. But actually, I think, I think there's a bit of an uncomfortable truth sometimes for us as Christians that if this is true, it has to change everything. Our lives should look entirely shaped by this truth, entirely shaped by this person. And actually... There's times where we can look around at ourselves, at other Christians, and we can go, actually, there isn't always that much difference between us and just good people who don't know Jesus. Actually, Christianity needs to be a little bit more than being a good person. And actually, if you're anything like me, you probably struggle to be a good person sometimes as well, right? 
Actually, we read these things and we're convicted and challenged by the love and grace and forgiveness. But these passages, this picture of Jesus, this glorious truth, has to change everything. Um, as a, a church, Mill Hill East Church is part of a group of other URC churches, of which City Temple is one, called the Good News Group. And we get together and we encourage each other um, to be good news. And I've been thinking a lot about this phrase because good news has to be something more than just a gospel tract. It has to be something more than just a sermon that we hear at certain times. It has to be something more than just the words of a powerful evangelist. And actually, it has to be something more because I am not a gifted evangelist. I've tried. I've tried really hard. I've had loads of failures. I've had a couple of glorious successes. But you know those evangelists, those guys who seem to get up and they tell some random story. Um, one of my favorite evangelists, uh, this Scottish evangelist called Mark Ritchie, hilarious guy. He would stand up on stage in front of thousands of people and he'd tell a story about a dog pooing in the revolving door of a supermarket and then share the gospel and everyone would come to faith. And I'd go, what? And I'd spend hours crafting my evangelistic sermon, explaining the truth of the gospel and I'd get crickets back in return. I don't know about you, but it can be hard. And it can be hard, particularly in our places of work, where we feel like actually it's hard to share the name of Jesus. It's hard to, to live out that message. But if good news is good news, it should have even more of a hold on ourselves than that. And as we go through this series, we're actually going to look a lot at the Apostle Paul. And he's going to be our way of thinking about how we can take the truth of this and live it out. How actually what we look at between 1.15 and 1.45 on a lunchtime service here should be just as true and should be just as lived out at 2.15 and 2.45, wherever you guys go next. And I think sometimes that isn't always true. Now, when I uh, came to faith, I came to faith uh, <clears throat> as a teenager and I started reading the Bible and the person of the Apostle Paul frightened me, right? I read his letters and he is hardcore and he's serious and his writings are deep and there's some profound truths in there. And then I read about him in the book of Acts and I read through the book of Acts and he just goes from place to place to place and sees miracles and healings and casts out demons from people and has miraculous encounters where he's released from prison and all this stuff. And I kind of got this impression that for me to be good news, for me to be a follower of Jesus is to be someone with that level of intensity, to be someone who sees day-to-day -day miracles, right? And actually, I've been to conferences where people have said from the front, oh, you know, we need a greater expectancy and we need a wave of the supernatural and you should be going out and you should be praying for the sick every time you leave your house and, you know, everyone should be getting healed all the time. And there's a truth in that. There's a beauty in that. And I've prayed for people and seen God heal them and that's been an amazing thing. But actually, when we look at the life of Paul, there's something about him that's a lot more relatable than we maybe have realized. I want to explain it by explaining a little bit about Paul's two names. Paul was called Paul and he was called Saul. And there's a really practical reason for this. He was probably called Sheol 
in, um, in Hebrew or Aramaic, which there isn't an H sound in kind of Latin and Greek in the same way. So they probably just couldn't pronounce his name. But I think there's something significant about these two names. Because Paul has two identities. And maybe when I explain this, I wonder if this resonates with you. Paul, when he is with Jewish people, he's called Saul. Who was Saul? The first king of Israel. In fact, Saul says he, in, uh, I think it's in Philippians, he says he is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the royal tribe, right? So he's got some royal blood in his veins. He's trained under Gamaliel, one of the most famous Pharisees. He's a teacher. He's an intellectual. In fact, he's such a profound teacher that he even, when he hears about this heretical new set of Christians going around saying Jesus had risen from the dead, Paul is the religious leader who gets a group of fanatics to go around with him, persecuting these Christians, chasing them from town to town. So he's an influential leader, right? He's a powerful teacher. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for the law, as to the law, blameless, at one point he describes himself. He is a powerful man. He's a powerful teacher, and we see some of that in the richness of his writing, right? But he's also called Paul. Paul means tiny. So it could be a bit of a cruel nickname that actually he was short. It isn't normal. You think of um, Cephas, Peter, Shimeon, how he was called those names, and actually they're very different. So it isn't, I don't think he was just called Paul because it was close to Saul. He was called Paul probably because he was short. He talks about himself as being a Roman citizen. And historically, the most obvious explanation we have for that is that he was the children of freed slaves. Probably there was, there was a time when there were lots of Jewish people in the city of Rome, and they were exiled, and probably he came out with his family. And he was given Roman citizenship by birth because his parents were slaves who were then freed. You might have heard uh, Paul being described as a tent maker. That's not strictly true. Um, the word is someone who works with canvas. He's a canvas worker. Um, and when we think about that, that makes a little bit more sense because people didn't love camping and going to summer festivals in Paul's time, right? It wasn't like he could make a full-time job just for making camps. But actually, when we think of the ancient world and when we look at some of what we've got, archaeologically in these hot climates people would often have very simple houses that then had big kind of canvas awnings you know like the front of a shop or like a big canvas umbrella that would then extend their house out and a lot of their house would be exterior under canvas as much as it would be interior and if you look at some films that try and focus on historical accuracy like if you look at scenes in gladiator you can see scenes where people's houses are made with canvas and that's significant Because to be a canvas worker, to work with your hands, Paul was fairly low class. He was fairly working class. We see someone else who has this, where Jesus is called a rabbi, but also the son of a carpenter. And he probably did a bit of both. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, but he's also a canvas worker who works with his hands. See, to be a religious teacher in the people of Israel, in the Roman Empire, didn't mean that you had a huge salary and a big synagogue that paid you and you, were, you made a comfortable living from being a religious teacher. Paul made his living by doing works with his hands that were despised. And here's the astonishing truth, right? When Paul then is called by Jesus to be an apostle, which part of his identity does he major on? 
Paul. He goes around, and what we read in his letters is that he works alongside them with his hands. We have this book, Philippians, because he met a lady, Lydia, someone else who worked with her hands dyeing cloth. And he meets people who are like him. He serves, he goes around doing his working class job. In fact, in some places, Paul says he didn't even allow them to pay him so that nothing about his message would be affected by that. He just went and did the lowest of the low job. Now, I don't know about you, I've had times in my life where I've been a worship leader in a really big church and I've worked in Costa Coffee and spent a lot of my time sweeping floors and washing dishes. And there are loads of us who maybe have those two parts of identity. You can be an elder or a deacon at church and you can have a job that is a lot more humble and simple in the rest of your life. Some of us actually are the other way around. Some of us have jobs where we're managers and in charge of lots of things and then we come to church and maybe just because we're so busy it's quite hard to serve church, we just come and we're part of it and we're part of our small group and we can have those different identities in different places, can't we? One of the things I find really interesting in this is that if you were to pick someone to go out and be the apostle to the Gentiles, to go to all the dangerous places and be really impulsive, I think you'd probably pick Peter, right? The caffeinated disciple, as I've heard him described, right? The one who was, who was bold and rash, the uneducated fisherman who would just go out there and get the job done. But Peter's the one who stays in Jerusalem with the center of religion, the center of religious debate. And Paul, who's the most trained religiously, is the one who's sent out where his training counts for less. Isn't that astonishing? Paul has written this letter, Philippians, because this church that he went to has sent him a gift through Epaphroditus, a guy who's come to support him. Um, and this is his response, and especially because Epaphroditus fell ill whilst he was with him. So Paul, Paul has not only just leaned into the lower part of his character, he's ended up in prison for what he believes. He has taken the lowest form possible. He has taken the low road. We're going to tease out the significance of that in just a second. See, Paul has ended up in Philippi because when he had his road to Damascus experience and he encountered Jesus, the first thing he did was go around and start preaching in Jerusalem. And he got such fierce opposition, he had to return to Tarsus and hide. Kind of go back to his hometown, go back where it was safe. And one of the things when we read the book of Acts and we hear all these miraculous stories, there are years and years and years between some of these stories. Okay? So Paul returns to Tarsus. And then it's actually Barnabas, when he's in Antioch and he has a church full of Greeks, that he says, oh, I need someone who'd be a good teacher. And he sends for Saul from Tarsus and brings him to Antioch and says, come and teach our church. And there's something about this Antioch church and Greeks and Jews together that inspires Paul, that teaches Paul about who God is calling him to be. So the church lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out. He goes around planting churches and doing incredible things. But again, I want to just take a step back and look at how Paul does this. Paul is in Philippi because he had a vision of a man from Macedonia. You can read about this, Acts kind of 15 to 18. I think particularly in Philippi, it's in Acts 16. 
Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia, so he goes. And he comes to Philippi. And what does Paul do? The text describes he doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't start a rally. He doesn't start Paul the Apostle Ministries and buy a white suit. And he doesn't start selling merchandise. And he doesn't do any of the things we might expect of a super apostle, a super evangelist these days. Paul goes to some women, low-class women, outside the city gate. And he starts there. He goes, he goes where God's led him, but he goes to the simple. In fact, he goes to someone called Lydia, and that's significant because Lydia is the name of a place. So for her to be named after a place, that's often how slaves were named. And it might be that she was a freed slave. It talks about her taking Paul back to her household. So she's become some, something significant, but she's still known as the Lydian, someone from, someone from the place of Lydia. In fact, some people have suggested that in Philippians, when Paul refers to Euodia and Syncta, he's referring to Lydia by her real name, not by her slave name. Paul is a fellow slave, freed slave, writing to someone else who's a freed slave. So let's just now dig into the message of this passage a second. Are you getting a slightly different picture of Paul than maybe you had before? Isn't it quite an inspiring picture of Paul? that he majors on the low part of his life. So Paul's in prison. Prison was not a good place to be. If you um, lived in a prison in that time, if you were sent to prison, you relied entirely on your friends supporting you just to eat, just to stay alive. And what message does he send from prison? What message does he send? Does he send a message of courage and comfort? Take heart, Jesus will come and he will rescue us and we'll be free and it's all fine. Does he send a message of freedom and future? God will release me from these chains. Don't worry, there's a future hope and it'll make all of our present suffering worth it. What would Paul's message be to you in your prison? Prison of being stuck at work, of broken relationships, of the things people have done to you, of your ill mental health. Paul has two messages. The first message is joy. Joy occurs 16 times in the book of Philippians. Paul has given up everything. And because of that, he lacks for nothing. Joy, deep joy. He finds a joy in togetherness. We often talk about the letters of Paul, but Philippians was written by Paul, Silas and Timothy together. Paul's writing to people who are just like him. People who work with their hands just like him. People who are lower class just like him. And he's full of joy. But the second message is sacrifice. Paul's comforting message from prison is give up everything. Give it up. If you want to find fullness, empty yourself. If you want to find satisfaction, Give everything away. We're in a world of more consumption than ever. Just a short walk down this road, you can take cuisine from anywhere in the world, right? We're in a world of consumption where I can pull out my smartphone and I have like all the information in history ever at the end of my fingertips. 
We're in a world of binging on TV series, of TV series that last for hundreds of hours and people watch them in a couple of days. We're in an era of total, total satisfaction and saturation of whatever we want, whenever we want it, no restrictions, and people feel emptier than ever. Suicide rates are going up. Mental health is more of an issue. People feel less satisfied, less whole. And Paul says, empty yourself. Empty yourself. Why is that? Well, in his passage, Paul says, because our story is supposed to be the story of Jesus. Consider Jesus, who though he was God himself, gave up everything, took on the lowest form, that God would lift him up that he would have the victory. So I finish with two very short questions before we worship together. First question is, do you have joy in your life? Is your Christian life one of joy? And maybe for Paul, part of the answer to that would be, would be, are you journeying together with other people in your faith? And the second question is, have you emptied yourself? What does your faith cost you? Paul doesn't say, this is how you pray. This is how you share the gospel. This is how you become an effective evangelist with a fruitful ministry. Paul says, have joy and give up everything. And in that, you'll find fullness of life. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep unpacking some of what Paul says to a couple of other churches. I just wanted to start by putting together the story of who Paul was as we consider some of the words that he said. Should we respond to those words in worship? Let's stand and pray together.